man came before the ancient of days and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and a people and nations and people from every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So the ascension of Jesus is important because it affirms that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but that he currently reigns. He's an authority. He is king of the kingdom of God. The other piece of good news about the ascension, and we're really going to get to this next week on Pentecost Sunday, but the other piece of good news is that when Jesus ascended, he didn't just like ditch us, right? Um, In the Gospel of John chapter 16, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for the day he would have to go. The disciples were like, what? Are you serious? We've left our jobs, our families, our security to come and follow you. We've been with you for three years waiting for your kingdom to come. What what is this talk about? You going somewhere. And here's what Jesus said to them, John chapter 16. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the good news is that even though Jesus was going away, he was sending his spirit to be with the disciples. And later, next week, uh, on Pentecost, the church will come to understand that the spirit of Jesus is living inside every one of his followers through faith. Jesus is no longer restricted to one time and space. Like when Jesus was with his disciples in the first century AD, he was where he was. Like if he was in Galilee, he wasn't in Jerusalem. And if he was in Capernaum, he wasn't in Emmaus, right? Like he he was a human being. He was just right there. He ascended, sent his spirit. Now Jesus is in me and he's in you and he's across the street and he's around the world wherever his church is. That's a pretty cool magic trick. A few verses later in John chapter 16, Jesus continued, I've got many more things to say to you, but you can't handle them right now. You can't handle the truth. I, I don't think he said that like that, but... But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He, the the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take of mine and make it known to you. So the Holy Spirit is given to the church and is given for the purpose of glorifying Jesus. Whatever gifts, whatever abilities, whatever insight or power or comfort or conviction that the Spirit produces in you and I, it's all for the glory of Jesus. Let's just say that together for something to do. Um, It's all for the glory of Jesus. It's all for the glory of Jesus. Yes. Log that in the memory banks, the cohort kids, if you're taking notes, it's all for the glory of Jesus, it would be a good thing to write down. Because I need to be reminded in my life, and that my life, and that my ministry, and that my existence is ultimately for the glory of Jesus. And I suspect that you probably need to be reminded of that too, on a regular basis. This evening we're going to explore chapter 12 of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, A church that desperately needed to be taught and reminded that their existence was for something bigger than individual pride. 
and individual power and individual comfort. Would you stand with me, please, as we read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual things, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all people. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. You see a theme here. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, and to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. Lord, thank You for Your Spirit. Thank You for the one Spirit that binds us together, that equips us in a variety of ways for one mission, the glory of Jesus. Help us to receive what you have to say to us tonight, Holy Spirit, through this word. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to guess that most of us, most of us, when we read this passage, automatically think that 1 Corinthians 12, at least the 12, 1 through 11 part, is about spiritual gifts. In my English Bible, I was reading for the New American Standard with a little Chris translation in there. Um, it even has a heading that says, the use of spiritual gifts. And the NIV, the one that's in your pew Bible, probably says concerning spiritual gifts, right above that chapter 12 designation. The ESV, if that's your Bible, has simply spiritual gifts above that chapter title. And even though in the original Greek manuscripts there's no headers and there's no verses and there's hardly any punctuation at all, we're preconditioned to think that this chapter is about spiritual gifts. After all, it's only one of three places in all the New Testament that has any semblance of list of spiritual gifts. The other two are Romans 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. In the Western church, and when I say that I mean Western Europe, Canada and the United States. In the Western Church, we have hundreds of books and seminars and conferences to help you figure out your spiritual gift. What makes you special? That's a pretty American way to think. What's interesting is that none of these lists in the Bible, these three main lists from 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, none of them are in any way uniform. None of them match up together, so it's not like Paul's working with one master list of gifts and he's given the same one every time. In fact, whenever Paul writes about spiritual gifts, the context is always unity in the church, and it's usually because there's division in the church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, 
And in Romans 12, that's exactly what he's writing into, is a device of divided church, and usually the division takes place around spiritual gifts. Like some people have certain gifts that they think are more important, and so they think they're more special than everyone else. If you were hoping for a sermon tonight on how to find your spiritual gifts or what every single gift means, you'll be disappointed this Sunday. But I do want to share my plan with you just so you have some hope. You're like, dang, this guy's disappointing. Okay, listen, I'm going to spend three weeks on this chapter, okay? Uh, And in the third week, we're going to deal with the end of the chapter, which if you read down at the end of chapter 12, there's another list of some gifts and offices. What I'm going to do on that week, on June 22nd, mark your calendar, is I'm going to read that section, and we're going to circle back to these gifts mentioned in chapter, the first part of chapter 12, and we're going to deal a little bit more with spiritual gifts, what they're for, all that jazz. Okay, so chill. It's coming on the 22nd. What I don't want to do, though, is skip over verses 1 and 2 and 3. Because if we missed those and just jumped into verse 4, I think we're going to miss quite a lot. So let's start digging into verse 1, okay? And uh, everybody, but cohort kids too, if you've got a pew Bible and you want to look at that uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, um, it might help it just to, to look at it as I talk about it, because it's kind of, kind of dense. The sentence begins with something like, now concerning spiritual things concerning spiritual things. Some translations may have now concerning spiritual gifts, but that's not really exactly correct. The word for gift in Greek is charism or charisma. Can you say charisma? Charisma? Charisma. Yeah, you just say gift in Greek, and that's exactly the word for spiritual gift in, in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, you'll see that word gift, and that's where it belongs. But here in chapter 12, verse 1, the word is now concerning pneumatikon. That's a fun one. Let's say pneumatikon. You just said spiritual. And when there's no object to go with that word spiritual, it's spiritual stuff or spiritual things. So the way to translate verse 1 is more accurately now concerning spiritual things. Spiritual things. This tips us off that Paul's main point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is spiritual things, not just spiritual gifts. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts in a little bit to illustrate his point, but he's talking about a broader thing, and it's spiritual things in general. Now, we are 12 chapters into this book, and I want to do a little comprehensive quiz. If you're newer with us, if you're our guest tonight, just don't worry, you're not on the hook for this quiz. Woody, you, it's okay, you've been gone a few seconds, that's all right. You, but everybody else, especially some of our, our cohort kids, does anyone remember what some of the controversies were up to this point that the Corinthians were mixed up in? And particularly, because I messed up in a lot of ways, so in particular, what concepts were sources of misguided pride for the Corinthians? What were they proud about? Did anyone think of some things that the Corinthians were proud about that Paul was trying to address? Let's yell it out. Intellect, yeah. Sexual freedom. Food. What? Church, yeah, they thought their church was pretty special. Yeah. Intellect. Sexual free. What's that? Head coverings, yeah, their freedom. Their freedom to do whatever they want. Yes, yes. 
Two things in particular. One is being spiritual. Some of you mentioned sexual freedom, and there, there was a time when some of these people actually wanted to dissolve their marriages because they thought, you know what, we're so spiritual. We don't want to be tied down with any of this physical relationship stuff. Okay, so spirituality. The Corinthians thought they were super spiritual, and they had, they had a lot to teach Paul because that poor guy was still tied down with these Jewish roots. And then the other thing was they were super puffed up on knowledge. And the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, right? Gnosis, that's going to come back in place. We'll listen to that one. So spirituality and knowledge, or gnosis. Some of the Corinthian Christians found it hard to leave their pagan past behind. They came to faith through the power of the Spirit and through the preaching of Paul. But soon after Paul planted this church, he stayed there about a year and a half, and then he moved on to go visit other churches. And not long after he left, they begin to slip back into their old way of seeing the world. Instead of viewing the body and creation and human relationships as good things created by God, they begin to act as though the body were something that didn't really matter. So some of them ate and drank alcohol in excess because, hey, the body doesn't matter. And some of them wanted, as I mentioned before, to dissolve their marriages, thinking, this, we don't need this thing. We're so spiritual, we don't need any physical contact anymore. We don't need to be tied down with people in these archaic uh, institutions. While others thought that the body didn't matter, uh, so rather than doing away with physical relationships, some people just thought, hey, this body, it's not going to last anyway. I'm just going to have as many relationships as intimately as I want, as often as I want, with whomever I want. Kind of sounds like our culture. They especially had a hard time with the fact that Jesus, the head of the church, became weak to save us by dying on a cross. These Corinthians were really into philosophy and knowledge and wisdom, had a hard time being proud of a Jewish dude from a backwoods place like Galilee, dying on a Roman cross, that's not a cool story to tell your, your high-class Greek and Roman friends. And maybe the hardest thing for them to accept was that the end of the hope of Christianity is resurrection. In what? A body. A better body. We've talked about all that around Easter. But a body, nonetheless, because the Greek thought was, hey, we're going to escape the world. We're going to escape physicality and be in an ethereal state, and it'll be better, so they thought. So much of 1 Corinthians is Paul trying to reason with them. Paul wants to correct, uh, correct their warped view of spirituality. They thought, we are spiritual masters, Jedi of the Christian academy. And Paul's saying, actually, you need to go back to Sunday school. And that's what this letter is. It's basically a Sunday school curriculum for them, for big kids. The second thing that some of the Corinthian Christians prided themselves upon was knowledge, as Emily alluded to. Now, Paul was a brilliant thinker and a very capable communicator, but his message, even though he could have made it complex, his message was simple. Jesus is God in the flesh. He died for the sin of the world. He rose, defeating death, and now he reigns. The Lord is Jesus. The King of the universe is Jesus. The only hope for rescue is the crucified, risen, and reigning Jesus. The answer is Jesus. It's pretty simple. I mean, Paul's brilliant, and he's got a lot of different ways to say that very simple message, but it's a very simple message. It's Jesus. Paul 
is writing to these people who thought, man, your teaching is so simple, so earthy, too embarrassing. Like, I've got friends who are in the cults, and they've got secret handshakes. Where's our secret handshake? Is this Jesus every week? I want a secret handshake, or I want to have, you, you don't have to have a special degree or have special knowledge to be a Christian? Well, that's kind of low class. Exactly, everybody can be part of it. That was the good thing about it. But so these people thought Christianity was kind of boring compared to the other mystery cults. And so Paul is writing to this misguided church that prides itself on being super spiritual and excelling in knowledge. So don't miss the ironies. I've, I've done a lot of work here to build this up, so please don't miss this. Don't miss the irony when he writes, Now, concerning spiritual things, I don't want you to be ignorant. Literally, agnostic, where we get the word agnostic. He's writing to these people puffed up about their spirituality and all of their knowledge, and he says, you know, I, you know about spiritual things, I, I don't want you to be ignorant. So if he's wanting to get their attention, bam, he did it like a slap in the face. In pagan worship, priests and worshipers prayed to any number of gods and goddesses who were represented by these idols, little statues, maybe made of wood or stone, marble, uh, sometimes metal. And obviously marble and metal and wood, well, they don't really move, and they don't talk, and they don't hear, and they don't see, and they don't do stuff. So what do you do in worship like that? So what they did was through various ways, whether it's drugs or sweat lodges or just uh, frenzied music, is they get themselves all worked up. In fact, just like the people leading the, the chants at the Sounders game last night. The guy was going crazy, but um, they get themselves worked up in a frenzy. And so worship was this ecstatic experience that could last for hours, and people were just going nutso. And sometimes they would have these utterances and, and, and language that would come out that was uh, un, unrecognizable, unintelligible. And this is why Christ, the Christian gift of tongues was so popular with these early pagan uh, converts to Christianity because it seemed closely aligned with the form of worship that they were familiar with. But there's at least two problems with their thinking. First, they saw spiritual abilities and giftings as signs of personal achievement and power. Because in a pagan worship environment, if you had some kind of special experience, it's because you worked hard to get there. And in Christianity, that's not the way it happens. It's the Spirit that gives us these abilities and experiences. The Corinthians saw these things as marking them as individually special and powerful. And Paul's going to have more to say about that later in the chapter. But their second error and the most fundamental blunder was the idea that somehow they achieved these spiritual experiences in their own efforts. So Paul reminds them, hey, you know, while you were still pagans before Christ, like, saved you, um, you were led astray. No matter what spiritual experiences they had, they were serving mute idols who could not at all lead them to the truth a mute idol cannot at all lead you to salvation mere spiritual experience does not necessarily equal life-giving spiritual experience and now we get to the strangest verse possibly in this whole chapter verse 3 if you're looking at it, look at verse 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says... Says what? Well, that's actually a little more complicated than you might think. 
in this Greek sentence, there is no verb. Very strange. In other words, there's no word is in the Greek or be. So it's literally anathema, Yesu, or two nouns, curse, Jesus, or Jesus, curse. All the major English translations add a connecting word such as is or be to link these two words because it doesn't sound right to have Jesus curse or curse Jesus. So we have in most of our Bibles something like Jesus is accursed or Jesus be cursed. Now what a strange thing to say. What's going on here? That doesn't really make sense. And we usually skip over it, don't we? Because in the next verse, we get to talk about the spiritual gifts. So who cares what it means? Well, it's actually kind of interesting. Let's look at it. So remember, Paul is writing to not just Corinthian people, but to the church in Corinth, like people who believe in Jesus, worship him. He's writing in the context of people gathered for worship. So think, if you were writing a letter to our church, we would read it as we're gathered for worship. Like after we just were on the back porch with Christy and Nathaniel singing these great songs to the Lord, we say something weird like, curse Jesus. Could you, that, that, that doesn't even make any sense. Can we really imagine a scenario where the church of Jesus in Corinth gathers for worship and are saying things like, Jesus be cursed or curse Jesus? And don't you think if people were saying such things that Paul would have a little more to say about it than what he says here in verse 3? That's kind of weird. So, okay. If that's weird, then why do our English translations find it necessary to add the connecting word is or be to the sentence, thus making it sound like someone in worship is cursing Jesus? Why do we do that? Real simply, the answer is because up until about 20 years ago, it was tough to know at all what was going on behind the scenes that would prompt Paul to write this sentence. And the alternative way to construct the Greek sentence would be something like this. Jesus curse. Now, it might be inconceivable to think of a church gathering for worship saying things like Jesus is accursed or Jesus be cursed, but wouldn't it be almost more inconceivable to think that Jesus would be the one cursing anyone? That would be inconceivable, uh, except for until recent findings. So what's changed? Archaeology has changed. Archaeology has helped us tremendously to understand the ancient world of pagan curses. And the forerunner of this research is a guy named Bruce Winter, who uh, was a scholar in the UK. Uh, but his work isn't just done in this corner. Other scholars like Matthew Malcolm have picked up this line of thought. And most significant to me, and probably to you, is uh, that Gordon Fee, who wrote uh, at the Regent College, he actually comes out of the Assemblies of God. He's one of the first PhD scholars out of the Assemblies of God. Um, he's like the authority on 1 Corinthians. He had the benchmark commentary on 1 Corinthians. In fact, I owned it and uh, gave it to Collins a couple years ago because he came out with a revised version. I thought, oh, it's a revised version. I've got to get this thing. It added about 300 pages is all, and I paid like 60 bucks for it. But one of the things he changed was his research on this verse to reflect the findings of this guy, Bruce Winter. So what did Bruce Winter discover? These, these, 
Ta-da! That's a curse tablet. Show the next one, please. There you go. That's another cursed tablet. This, what, this cursed tablet is in Latin. It was found in a Roman bath. The one previously to that was found in Sicily. It was in Greek. Uh, and here's the cool thing about it. Well, not cool. They're kind of weird. Uh, this, this was a whole deal. They're written on lead pieces, and you would scrawl into these tablets a curse on someone else. And then typically, these have been unfolded, but typically they would be folded up with some kind of like nasty root or a dead animal bone or something gross. And oftentimes they were poked through like a voodoo doll, only it was like poked through to the ground so that the person they were cursing would be like stuck or confined. Pretty weird, huh? Like that big. The other one, the, the, go to the one before that. It's like a, like, a, like a TV remote. I mean, it's only like that big. Yeah. Now, where were these found? And how does this bear on our text? Well, they're found in Greece, in Rome, and in Roman colonies. Thousands of them. And several hundred have been found in Corinth, dating between 200 B.C. and 240 A.D. And Paul's writing in about 53 A.D., so right in that time period. Now, what is the deal with cursing? There are four major arenas that people would curse people in. Sports, which isn't that far-fetched. Like, even in our teams, we sometimes like, go Hawks, whatever it takes. No, okay. But in sports, and you know how big sports were, like Ithmian games and Corinth and stuff. So people would be like, I hope his leg rots off. And, and then they would wrap him up and they'd stick him in there, okay? Uh, politics and litigation. So anything in the government or in lawsuits with other people. Love, of course, is a big one. Uh, the romantic world and jealousy and all this kind of stuff. And the business world. So those are the four major spheres. And here's how they worked. Curses against a person were written on these lead tablets. Usually near the end of the curse, the name of a god or a goddess was invoked so that they would carry out the curse's wishes. So like, um, oh, I don't even, that's so weird to use an example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nathaniel wants to curse me um, and wishes me severe... Soccer injury. Oh, oh. If it happens tomorrow, bro. Okay. Yeah, just go with this for the example. Go with it. So, uh, yeah. Soccer injury. He rolls it up and he, and, he, and he goes, by the will of the god Demeter or Persephone. Those were two popular ones that would. And then he'd roll that up and he, no, where would he take that? He would take it to Northwest Fields and he would bury it under the pitch. So these things are found all over the gymnasiums. They're found outside of temples. They're found outside of, they're found in graveyards, buried with people who were related to the one getting cursed. This is weird stuff. By the way, kids, this is not in the Bible and Jesus isn't saying to do this. This is like weird stuff that's happening around this time. And so far, what we've seen is that curses were common in Rome and Roman colonies, including Corinth. The evidence shows that curse tablets um, were common not only in Corinth, but in Corinth during the time that Paul was writing. And we know that pagans would invoke the name of a god or goddess to carry out a curse against an enemy. But that's all we know so far at this point in the argument. I just want you to track with me. All I'm saying is that we know that these cursed things happened frequently in Corinth during the time among pagan people, not Christian people. So what does it have to do with the church? Well, that's where further evidence comes into play. We have cursed tablets made by Christians invoking the name of 
God in general. Sometimes they say, in the name of the Holy Trinity, curse someone. Sometimes it's in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so they'll spell it out. Sometimes it's a, 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 you know, a famous apostle or a saint, but these are Christian curse formulations and tablets. And here's an example of a curse tablet from a Christian mother. Mothers of sons out there, pay attention. A Christian mother who did not like the woman who had caught the attention of her son. And so I'm quoting Bruce Winter. A mother delivered a very strong curse against a young lady who had captured the affections of her son and who clearly had failed to please her prospective uh, mother-in-law. The unfortunate young lady would not be heard by God, be without hope in this world, childless, demon-possessed, ill, feverish, with chill and numbness of heart, itching all over her body, with continual feminine problems, and die. Don't mess with that woman's son. Isn't that crazy? So th this is one of those unearthed, and th this is the type of stuff going on. This was a Christian woman who wrote this, and so you can see how this mixture um, of, of uh, pluralism, really. Let me see this. Well, we, there's examples in our culture, too, but obvious ones are maybe um, where you see Christianity mixed in Latin America with uh, an animist culture, and you see, oh, that's a Catholic church. Oh, great. Oh, that's weird. They're like praying to this weird fountain that sprung up, and it has Mayan roots or something like that. See, so there's this mixture, and it still happens all, all the time. How could a Christian make such a curse against another human being made in the image of God? That's a great question. They shouldn't be doing that. But is it all that surprising? I mean, in chapter 1, we saw divisions in the church of Corinth over personalities, right? In chapter 6, Christians were taking each other to public court, not because they actually wanted to win the case, but to shame someone's name in public. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 6. In chapter 11, we saw men covering their heads in worship, because it meant that they were trying to make themselves more powerful to stand out above everybody else. Could you imagine a church where some of you, like just said, I'm more important than the rest of you. Ha ha! It's not even a Bellingham thing. I can't imagine that. And then also in chapter 11, you have women taking off their head coverings, married women, basically saying, I'm free to do whatever I want, even if it makes me say physically, I want to look like a prostitute and shame my husband. So we talked about that in chapter 11. Later on in chapter 11, we talked about during a famine in Corinth, rich people were coming together for worship. So we have a meal here after church, right? It'd be like, I know, let's just say, John, you came into some serious coin, and you and Lois have all this money, and we're all starving, and you sit at a table that's higher, right with us, and you're eating like prime rib, and oh, it's so good, you can't even eat it all, but you're not sharing. And we're eating... I don't know, what's nasty? Brown rice. That's nasty. <laughs> yeah, I said that. Brown rice is nasty. And anyway, so, so we're saying, we don't even get butter or salt on it. We're just eating that. We're like, hey, John. Well, little brother, this steak sure is, I mean, that's what they were doing. That's what the end of chapter 11 is about, is people devouring their decadent food in front of poor people to shame them. Do you see? This is the purpose was to shame other people. So these people were nasty to each other. And as we said when we looked at that passage, we can be nasty to each other too. We just have Bellingham style. We do it with being passive-aggressive and uh, nasty in a different way. So we're not immune. But these people were just like, 
out in the open with it. Okay, so it's not that inconceivable in this church for people to have this problem where they might be invoking the name of Jesus to curse someone else. Screwed up. So what does this tell us? For starters, conversion to following Jesus is a process. I mean, you you could look at those people and say, how could they be Christians in doing this stuff? Along the way, There might be a decision to follow Jesus or multiple decisions to follow Jesus. There's probably going to be baptism along the way. There's partnership in a local church. There's discipleship going on. But conversion to the lifestyle of Jesus is a lifelong process of tiny deaths to self along the way. If you think about it from a pagan point of view, They had heard Paul's preaching about a God who had defeated death itself. A God named Jesus, who was also the creator of the universe, who had a kingdom that would never end. What better or more powerful God could you possibly imagine to put at the end of your curse tablet than that? Paul's point, of course, is that no one who uses the name of Jesus to curse other people are doing that in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's inconceivable. So he's saying to them, knowing full well that they're doing this in their church, no one could say Jesus curse in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's inconceivable. The Spirit, what does the Spirit do? Exists to glorify Jesus. Right? Conversely, no one can say The Lord is Jesus, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, anyone in the world could say those words. Like if they were written on a napkin, the Lord is Jesus. Hey, what does that say? Biggest non-Christian person in the world uh, that says the Lord is Jesus. Of course, anyone can say the words, but you can't have faith that the words are true, except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Plus, No person in the first century Roman Empire would want to say that anyone is Lord except Caesar. To proclaim the lordship of someone else would likely get you arrested, possibly killed, and in future years, um, it would certainly get people killed for not saying that Caesar is Lord. It takes a movement of the Spirit to have faith in Jesus. So as we enter verses 4 through 11, Paul is going to list some spiritual gifts. Remember, we're coming back on the 22nd for these. Don't freak out. But he, he, he gives us this list of gifts to illustrate his point. The abilities and power that the Holy Spirit grants baptized believers of Jesus are not for personal gain. They're not indicators of who's more important than everyone else in the church. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit in us, Paul continually points out, is from the same Spirit. One Spirit gives us all this diversity and variety. And in verse 7, he gives us the key. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. For the work of the church and the power of the Spirit. Remember, Remember what Jesus said in John's gospel. The Holy Spirit empowers us to glorify Jesus. The Corinthians, from their pagan background, saw power as something to be used for individual gain and personal uh, uh, experience. 
And as Americans, aren't we bred in a culture that exalts us as individuals, that preaches self-sufficiency? It's how I wish my Samara would get dressed on her own. There is something to be said for good self-sufficiency. Our culture tells everyone they should strive to be special, like the Lego movie and being the special. Come on, Emmett. To stand out, to be powerful, to be assertive, to take control. And Paul's trying to tell us, hey, this is what power is not for. You didn't receive this power in the Spirit to be cursing people and to be claiming positions above people in the church. But this is what power is for. Power, when wielded under the lordship of Jesus, is not for personal gain. It's for the good of the church and the glory of Jesus. So whether it's personal power uh, because you, you have a political post, or maybe it's power because you have influence in the community in some way, or maybe it's power in the church because you're on the leadership team, or you, have, you, you lead some kind of ministry. Our power is for the good of others and the glory of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is a powerful antidote to selfishness and individualism. And in light of this passage tonight, I want you to just hear it afresh. All things, including heaven and earth, subatomic particles, and the person sitting next to you, all things are created by Jesus. All people, yourself included, were created to be, are created to be image bearers of the living God. You were created with great dignity, with great authority to reflect God's goodness on earth as it is in heaven. All people, including me and including you, rebel against God. Deep down, we all want to be in charge, to call our own shots, to create our own significance. And all rebels, including me and including you, are lost without hope, without Jesus. So, Jesus, the creator, became flesh. He dwelt among us. The most powerful being in the universe showed us what love means by serving others. That true power always brings God glory. That true power always does right by our neighbor. Jesus died for us, atoning for our sin. Jesus rose, defeating death. Jesus ascended and rules over all things. And Jesus will return and bring his kingdom in full. If you believe these things, even with microscopic faith, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure, not quite sure. That's about all, as good as it gets, by the way. If you're overconfident, that would freak me out a little bit. But even microscopic faith in these things, then our passage tonight, if you want to say, what was the point of all that with all those tablets and everything? Our passage tonight affirms that if you have mustard seed faith in the gospel of Jesus, that's because the Holy Spirit enabled it. And that's because the Holy Spirit is working in you and has worked in you to bring you to faith. And there's nothing you did to earn that. 
And all you can say is, oh, how he loves us. How he loves us to get, to open our hearts up to that faith. So let's love him by using whatever power we have, whatever, whatever gifts he's given us to his glory and to our neighbor's good. Let's pray. King Jesus, the one who made us, dwelt among us, died for us, rose and reigns, bless you. Bless you for not leaving us alone, but for pursuing us, for sending your spirit to draw us into faith, to equip us as your church. Lord, we, we think about these things far uh, too little. Lord, we confess that so often we are, and I am, running on fumes, overextended, oftentimes operating out of the flesh. Thank you for this passage tonight that reminds us there is another way. That encourages us by saying, if we have faith at all, it's because of you, the gift giver. I pray that you would fill my brothers and sisters and I with life-giving faith, with energy and power to glorify you through our actions and to serve our brothers and sisters. Give us the power to die to ourselves. Give us the courage to live a radical lifestyle. Thank you for new life, Lord.